American Majority. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org. This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to Episode 9, The Sugar Act of 1764. This week, I want to continue discussing the string of acts and taxes passed by Parliament in the wake of the French and Indian War, this time discussing the Sugar Act. Now, with the Sugar Act, American opposition to British taxation began to increase in its intensity, and the sense of colonial unity began to gain a foothold as well. All the colonies from Georgia to New Hampshire realized that despite the distance and differences between them, they were up against it together, with the it being the British crown and parliament determined to make the colonies pay for the French and Indian War debt and the continued defense of the colonies. Though it would be a few years before the idea of revolution hit the mainstream of America, the colonists were gradually growing more frustrated with British authority and more bold in their reaction to the crown's impositions. The colonists were on the road to revolution for sure, and they were picking up momentum. In 1764, King George III, who had only been crowned three years earlier, found himself with swaths of new land from his victory in the French and Indian War. The Treaty of Paris, signed in 1763, had ceded Canada to England, along with Florida and some Caribbean islands. Now, I spoke in the previous podcast about the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which was meant to prevent further conflict between Indians and colonists, and also to establish colonial governments for the newly acquired territories. The Proclamation Act attempted to solve one of the two main problems facing the British in 1763, land management. However, it did nothing to raise revenue vital to paying off the British national debt, which had doubled in the previous 10 years, and instead worsened the tensions between the colonists and the crown. William Pitt the Elder, who had served as the British Secretary of State and the leader of the House of Commons, fell from power in 1761, largely because of his reputation for fiscal recklessness. He was replaced by George Grenville, his brother-in-law, whose reputation for money management was far superior to Pitt's. As the Crown planned to station a standing army in the colonies of 10,000 troops in the wake of Pontiac's rebellion, costs were only expected to go up and the national debt to increase unless there was an additional revenue stream. The King and Parliament looked to Grenville for the solution to its financial quagmire. His solutions, however, took the form of taxes and tariffs designed to raise revenue from British subjects on both sides of the Atlantic. The first major North American Revenue Act under Grenville, passed in April of 1764 and targeted mainly at the New England colonies, was the Sugar Act. Since 1733, British colonists in North America and the Caribbean had traded raw materials under the governance of the Molasses Act. This act imposed a duty on molasses imports in New England, where Caribbean molasses was used to make rum, which was then exported to Britain. The act was set to expire in 1763, however, and Parliament took this opportunity to replace it with a duty that would raise a bit more revenue in these tough financial times. One of the rationales expressed by Parliament for passing the Sugar Act was the rampant smuggling and thwarting of customs authorities that had been going on in the American colonies for decades. This accusation was actually well-founded. Colonists had quickly discovered that skirting the Molasses Act and other trade regulations was worthwhile and cost-effective. At the same time, British customs officials had discovered that accepting bribes was a great way to make some extra cash. 
Many American families came to prominence because of money from less-than-kosher shipping operations, with one of the most interesting examples of such a family being that of John Hancock. The Massachusetts Patriot and signer of the Declaration of Independence inherited the shipping company, the House of Hancock, from his uncle, Thomas Hancock, who had built his business largely on smuggling goods, including rum, to the Netherlands. John Hancock was widely regarded as one of the wealthiest men in the 13 colonies, but there were many merchants like him who achieved similar success and relative wealth due to smuggling. The Grenville Parliament's first response to this widespread black market was the expansion of the powers of the admiralty courts. These courts would try merchants accused of smuggling, and defendants were not allowed the right to a jury of their peers. The courts were effective in preventing the smuggling of taxable goods. However, they could only stop losses rather than provide an additional source of money. Thus, Parliament decided that another revenue-raising measure was needed. But let's take a look at this from a different angle. The French and Indian War had actually been very good to the North American colonists. Smuggling, privateering, and a booming wartime economy combined to create massive economic prosperity for the American colonists, so much so that historian John C. Miller argues that the war enriched the colonies to the point that British officials felt justified in collecting increased revenue. With this attitude in mind, Parliament passed the Sugar Act, which imposed a tax on North American imports of molasses, sugar, and other products containing sugar. It also gave Britain a monopoly on the American sugar trade by only allowing British colonies to buy or sell sugar or molasses to Britain or other British colonies. They argued that the Sugar Act was necessary to maintain and strengthen the trade monopoly that operated between Britain and its American colonies, and this was the main focus of the bill. However, Samuel Adams, a chief protester of the Sugar Act, who would turn, turn out to be ahead of his time, argued otherwise. Adams argued that the Sugar Act was not a trade regulation, but a tax, levied for revenue, and designed as an entering wedge for parliamentary taxation of the colonies. Adams argued further that this act was a breach of the colonists' rights, and that it amounted to taxation without representation. Unfortunately for Adams, however, his opinions largely fell on deaf ears, as the opposition to the taxation without representation only caught on with a small minority of colonists. Instead, the main opposition to the Sugar Act was mostly a response to the act's economic effects. Now, the effects of the Sugar Act were felt most strongly in the Caribbean colonies and New England, but at different extremes. In the tropics, molasses producers saw their profits skyrocket as molasses prices rose. In New England, however, as it became more expensive to import molasses, distilleries closed and rum exports fell, damaging the local economy. In addition, with the tax on sugar, many imported luxury goods that had once been affordable for colonists became harder to come by. In sum, the Sugar Act was a boon for the Caribbean colonies and a source of unrest for New England. But the interesting thing to highlight about the Sugar Act is that it hardly affected the southern American colonies. With their largely agrarian economy, the colonists in the South were virtually unaffected by the Sugar Act. The act was felt most strongly in the molasses trade, and since the southern colonies did not import or export large quantities of molasses, they had very little concern about the act. On the other hand, the reaction in the northern colonies was noticeably more outspoken. But in the bigger picture, compared to later reactions to taxation, the New England colonists were still fairly compliant. The reaction of the colonists was swift and coordinated, 
but on a small scale. Samuel Adams, Thomas Hutchinson, and Oxenbridge Thatcher were the three prominent leaders of the fledgling opposition mentioned by historian John C. Miller. But in spite of the small numbers, Adams' reputation as a patriot and a rebel began in Boston with the Sugar Act. First, Adams organized a boycott of British luxury imports by over 50 Boston merchants beginning in August of 1764, coupled with a push for an increase in domestic production of these goods. Second, a few violent incidents occurred involving merchants and custom agents, but these were few and far between and go virtually unmentioned in the history books. Now, don't think that the raising of taxes on British subjects was specific to the American colonies alone. British subjects on the other side of the ocean faced higher taxes as well. After all, they had fought a war in Europe while the French and Indian War raged in North America. With some of the acts passed by Parliament aimed at collecting revenue from British subjects in England and Ireland, commoners proved that American colonists were not the only rebels. In fact, John Miller writes about an interesting incident related to what is known as the Cider Bill. In 1763, Parliament passed an act placing a tax on each gallon of cider or beer made in England in order to raise revenue, just as they were doing in the colonies. The reaction of British townspeople was explosive. They formed mobs and dealt violently with British excise officers sent to enforce the tax, denouncing them as ruffians and agents of tyranny. The Crown repealed the cider tax after two years of violence. According to Miller, American colonists heard of this incident and took notice. On the whole, the reaction to the Sugar Act was much less violent, but the colonists learned that it was indeed possible to resist an act of Parliament to the point that it could be repealed. The Cider Bill incident proved that Parliament was neither invincible nor infallible, a lesson that the colonists would embrace and use soon after the Crown began imposing those taxes on them after the French and Indian War. In 1766, the Sugar Act was repealed by Parliament in response to complaints from the colonists and the New England boycott. It was promptly replaced, however, by the Revenue Act of 1766, which levied a less imposing tax on sugar and molasses. This largely assuaged the grievances of the colonists, but soon several more acts were passed to arouse their anger, including the infamous Stamp Act, which I'll cover in a later podcast. Though it was short-lived, the legacy of the Sugar Act was an important one. It was the first of a long string of taxes passed by Parliament for the express purpose of extracting revenue from the colonies to pay down the national debt. The preamble to the Sugar Act set the tone for the revenue legislation of the next decade. It stated... It is expedient that new provisions and regulations should be established for improving the revenue of this kingdom, and it is just and necessary that a revenue should be raised for defraying the expenses of defending, protecting, and securing the same. Parliament clearly meant for this act to be the first of several designed to recoup the money lost in the Seven Years' War and French and Indian War quickly and efficiently. Another legacy of the Sugar Act was the precedent of a somewhat popular backlash against the crown and a sense of unity among several colonies as they suffered a common plight. I said earlier that the protest to the Sugar Act was far from overwhelming and that it was mainly a response to the economic impact rather than the political power of the crown. But importantly, never before had an effort as large or effective as the New England boycott of luxury goods been organized and effectively executed as a protest. Samuel Adams and a small circle of active 
patriots coordinated an impressive protest movement, and their collective action was ultimately successful in repealing the act that they had fought. In addition, the New England colonies experienced a noticeable uptick in general feelings of colonial unity while they endured the damaging effects of the Sugar Act together. It is a common theme of history and politics that diverse people within a system will be much more apt to set aside their differences when they face a common threat from outside of the system. In this case, colonists from Massachusetts had previously cared little about the affairs of Rhode Island, but after the passage of the Sugar Act, they found that they had much more in common than they had thought. They began organizing networks across colonial borders, assembling committees of correspondence, and organizing widespread movements such as Samuel Adams' boycott. This trans-colonial unity was unprecedented on the level of the general populace, and it was the beginning of an American identity that would quickly develop in the years leading up to the Revolutionary War. To quote Miller again, he sums up this concept when he writes, Certainly the menace of the Sugar Act led Americans to unite, which fear of the Indians and the French had never done. Miller points out that this unity was truly unprecedented even after a war with a foreign power. The acts passed in the immediate wake of the French and Indian War were a trying time for the American colonies, and they responded to the drastic changes in their way of life by unifying and beginning a policy of defiant action against the Crown and Parliament. New England's merchants' reaction to the Sugar Act was tame when compared to later incidents, but the sentiment of rebellion was growing. We will see in future podcasts that the colonists' patience was not unlimited, and they would eventually reach the breaking point of their relationship with the mother country. But instead of the Crown or Parliament being willing to listen or reason with the colonists, or even giving them a voice in the debates and decisions that would impact the colonies, the Crown and Parliament in effect said, you'll do what we say, and better yet, you'll like it. To which the colonists began saying, and I paraphrase just slightly, we think not. In the next podcast, the Parliament and Crown would display their growing talent for pouring gasoline on the increasing colonial unrest by passing the Currency Act of 1764. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org and written by Ned Ryan and Eric Josephson and recorded by Ned Ryan. If you enjoy this podcast on American history, be sure to check out the History of the Constitutional Convention by Ned Ryan at AmericanMajority.org or on iTunes.